I'm good. Shout. Um, this isn't a rhetorical question. I actually want people to shout this out uh, for a change. What do you think, in your opinion, is the single most popular piece of music? And don't look behind you. That's cheating. <laughs> single most popular piece of music that is played at funerals globally. Amazing Grace. Keep coming. Not it. I'll fly away. Nope. Keep coming. What else? Swing low, great as thy faithfulness. Great, great funeral song choices. Nope. What else? Jesus loves me. What was over here? It is a secular song, if that gives it away to you. No? Over the rainbow. That's like third, I think. Yeah. The, the, the Hawaiian guy version, right? Somewhere over. That's the third one. What do we think is number one? We're getting there. Mm, that one's, I think, top five, but not it. Nope. It's a small world after all. <laughs> this might be weird to say, but the wrong answer, but I want to come to that funeral someday because that would be an interesting sight to behold. Um, I'm not sure I would want to conduct the funeral with It's a Small World after all, but I would certainly like to sit in the back and just watch that happen. No, the best, the number, not best, the number one chosen song for funerals globally is My Way by Frank Sinatra. Does anybody, raise your hand if you've ever been to a funeral where that song has actually been played. My Way by Frank Sinatra. That is across the spectrum of, of Christian, secular, everybody together, the entire world, the number one, by like a scary large margin, the number one song is My Way, which is a song about what? How all through life, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what the people said, regardless of what the world told, I, you know, at the end of the day, when I breathe my last, I can say one thing with certainty. I did it my way. Right? It's the number one song. Now, if you had this song at a funeral for a loved one, you know, I don't want you to feel somehow bad for the things I'm about to say because there are compelling actual reasons, sentimental reasons, that you might choose this particular song. And so, you know, it might have been someone's favorite song when they were growing up. And so I don't want to say that if you ever put this song in a funeral, you're wrong by any stretch. But I will say it is a little disturbing that it's the most popular one all around the world for funerals, right? But I think that it, it tells us something about the way our, our world and our culture and even ourselves, right? We're not talking about outside the church. We're talking about ourselves here too. Kind of the way that we think and the mentality that we have as sinful human beings, right? The very essence of sin is I want to do it my way. And so it's really, it shouldn't be a surprise that it's the number one song choice for people at the end of their life because one of the things that we as people are generally most proud of is when we do it our way, when we live our truth, when we do things the way that we want, right? When we are embodiment of self-care, right? Who here has heard lately the phrase self-care and loves that phrase? Nothing wrong with that. Occasionally, go pamper yourself a little bit. Have some self-care. Make sure you get the right amount of sleep and you eat right and all these things, right? But we, we have become, as a society, globally so encapsulated with the self with the me and the I. And then it's showing up representatively in our own funerals as a, as a culture, right? as the number one song to sing, Do It My Way. 
The next time you go to a funeral and that song is sung, you're never going to be able to think of it the same again. You can call me and say, Vince, my, my cousin you know, passed and I wasn't able to focus because all I could think about is this sermon. I'm really sorry. But you're just going to have to live with that. Today, we want to look at Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 tells us about the fall of man. Right? And, and we all understand, most of us in this room could answer the question of what is sin with some degree of of completeness, right? We cannot talk about sin. Uh, most of the time, even people who have never stepped foot in a church will understand, well, sin is bad. It's doing the wrong things. It's maybe even they go so far as it's thinking the wrong things or, you know, whatever your idea or definition of sin is. But I, I would think that almost all of us probably have to some degree, at least, if not a wrong definition of sin, an incomplete definition of what sin in this world actually is, how it came, how it functions, how it distorts things, how it messes with us as a people. And so this morning I want to look at the fall. We've been looking through the book of Genesis. This is our second week. We're doing an overview of nine weeks. And the first week we looked last week at creation. We looked at how God made things, right? how he created the world in, in seven days and how on the final one of those days, on day six, he made man before he rested on the seventh and what we walked away with is that God made this world to be absolutely perfect. That everything was harmonious. Everything functioned as it should. The things that we just a little bit ago prayed for in terms of healing wouldn't have been things we would have thought to pray for because we wouldn't have think, thought that they existed. right? We wouldn't pray for pain or suffering or illness or disease or heartbreak or underemployment or any of these things because they didn't exist when God made the world. And so how did we get from this perfect, beautiful place, this garden of Eden with Adam and Eve walking with God, talking with God? How do we get to that, to the world that we live in today? Because listen, if you still operate under the premise that the world and its people are basically good, I'm not sure the last time you looked out outside. Right? This world is crazy. And in, in many ways... It's, it's stuff that's done to us, but in many ways, it's also stuff that we, we jack stuff up pretty well ourselves too, don't we? Right? The world is a mess. There's violence and pain and death and disease and sadness and abuse and all kinds of things that wreck our world. And so we got somehow from A to B, and we're going to look at how that happened this morning and what the implications of that are for the world in which we live. And so I want to invite us to stand together as we read from Genesis 3. Uh, here in a, at Stowe Press, we, we stand not because of somehow it changes anything or we're more, more saved if we stand up, but we stand when we read scripture just out of a, a reverence piece to, to who God is, right? We want to acknowledge that his word is, is bigger than us, right? When I preach, I'm, I'm just talking, and, and the Lord inspires that and guides that and shapes that, but it's still my words. These aren't my words, these aren't coming from me. These have nothing to do with how good or bad of a preacher I am, how skilled or unskilled I am. These are the very words of God himself, and they're holy. And so we stand as we revere him in light of that. Let's read together Genesis 3. We'll start in 2.25. It's the last verse of 2, um, and I'll tell you why in a second. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them and said to him, said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. The start of the, the, the kind of last verse in Genesis 2 there is part of this fall passage. And the reason I included it is because it, it gives us kind of the, the beautiful picture 
of, of what the world, the creation was like right before Eve and Adam made the choices that they did, right? And it's this, it's this weird passage about nakedness. And I know when we think naked, we immediately, like our middle school mind kind of comes out and we want to giggle a little bit. But nakedness here represents something far bigger than just this idea of they were naked. It shows us that before the fall, there were a whole lot of things, bad things, that were lacking in the creation that we take for granted. It's a sign of the perfect innocence of man that they were able to be around each other and around God, naked and totally unashamed. There's things that don't exist in creation that now exist. Things like shame and guilt and self-consciousness. Right? They, were, they were perfectly, beautifully vulnerable. We don't have vulnerability today to a degree that we should, right? We all put up walls. We all somehow guard ourselves when we come here, right? This is such a silly thing. And again, guard, guard the middle school part of you. But in a perfect world, we all would be currently naked. And I, I'm not, I mean, I'm genuinely, I'm not trying to be, be funny. It's funny to us because of how messed up our mindset has become as people that are stained under sin. It wouldn't be significant to us. Like, no one would look around and be, oh my gosh, we're all naked. It just, it just would be the way it is. And there'd be no looking at one over the other. There'd be no measuring ourselves up from one to the other. That person's more beautiful. That person you know, has let themselves go. None of those things that, that are naturally in our minds when we think of our outer beauty are, are, are in any way a part of the conversation pre-fall. It would just be how it is. Right? It's just a beautiful picture of a world that is just completely free of all the mess. And the serpent enters into that. The serpent comes in in this crafty way. One of the things we we learn is after this beautiful kind of picture of nakedness, the reason this was so important is because it it, it signifies that just all those lack, those negative things were gone. But the enemy brings those things in. Satan comes in the form of a serpent. He's not called Satan in this passage, but from Scripture, from other places, such as Revelation, we gather that the serpent was Satan, the enemy, the devil. Right? And so he comes in the form of a serpent, and he approaches Eve. Right? And we might not understand this fully, but God within his creation included a certain level of freedom. Right. To me, when I read the fall passage, the first question I have is, if the world was perfect, what was the serpent doing there? Why, why? It's clearly not a part of the perfection of God's design. Right? It's a blip, and God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't create imperfect things. So how, how did it get there? What was, what was it, how did we get to the point where Satan could even exist in a world that was created with perfection? And we don't quite understand how the freedom of, of man plays into the sovereignty of God in all things. But, but we know this. The Lord created us somehow with a certain level of, of freedom of choice. Right? We're not robots that are created to kind of drone on and just... God is the puppeteer that pulls the strings. Right? We're created to have some level of autonomy. We function in some way on our own. 
He made us that way. He made us with the ability to have choice. And so we can presume that Satan made the choice to rebel, to live in a rebellion against the ways of God's creation. And we don't know why, right? We can speculate as to why God would give choice. Uh, I, I tend to think speculatively, keep that in mind, that, you know, you, you, you can't, like, genuine love requires choice, right? Like, if Britta could somehow zap me into loving her through, like, some kind of trance, would it really be actual genuine love? I, I don't know. Right? You have to have a choice of whether to, to, to love a person or not. And so uh, maybe he gave us some level of freedom so that our, our, our ascribing of worship and glory to him would be genuine in some way. I, I don't know. Those are some of the things that belong to the mysteries of God. But choice existed, and we know that Satan chose to live a life of rebellion against the creator God of the universe. And this illustration, this, 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 this historical conversation that we're looking at in Genesis 3, really what it is is just the, the, the serpent trying to draw humanity into that rebellion. And as we see, he'll succeed. And so we don't know how exactly it worked, but we knew that Satan was rebellious against God and that the serpent shows up to try to trick Eve into the same thing. And the conversation between Satan and Eve is so much packed with subtlety and crafty deceit, even though it's just a couple verses long, that we kind of have to unpack it verse by verse. All right? So we'll look at the language that we see here. And one of the first things we notice before we look at the actual conversation transcript is that Satan does a subtle thing that you can only spot in the original language. Everywhere in Genesis 2, 3, and 4, when God is referenced, it's the Lord God. In Hebrew, that would be Elohim Adonai. Right? When Satan mentions God's name, he uses the simplified Elohim. He cuts off the Lord part. Right? Because to Satan, God isn't Lord. That's why when we, when we talk about salvation, we go, do you trust Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of your life? It's both, right? He can't just be your Savior and not your Lord. He can't, you can't just be the one that pulls you out of the fire pit, but you don't actually care about anything he says, right? We're called to be saved by him, but then to live under his rule as well, right? And so the serpent starts it. He doesn't make anything of it. He just uses Elohim as a simplified way. And what you'll notice in the, in, the, in the language is when Eve responds to Satan, she starts to use the same Elohim subconsciously. So as she's answering, well, no, that's not what God really said. She stops saying, Lord God. So just through his crafty use of language, Satan convinces Eve already to start, stop thinking about God as a Lord of my life type of figure and more just another, another voice among two. Right? He puts himself subtly on equal footing, where she starts to second guess and say, well, what, who's to say that the things that God says and the things that serpents, like, who's right? right? There's no sense of, no, this one's Lord of my life. This is irrelevant. It's the subtle equilibrium that Satan creates just through the use of language before he ever really makes an actual statement. Right? If you ever want to know how cunning is the devil, Pretty cunning, right? Only one person exists more clever, more intelligent than Satan himself, and that's the creator, God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of us are less intelligent than Satan is in terms of his craftiness and his cunningness, right? So we need God to be able to combat and to fight against the powers of evil. So Satan comes, and he starts to talk to Eve, and he asks a question that is very innocent, 
Because look, did, did, God really, did God really say you couldn't eat of any trees? And, and you see how he twists, right? That's not what God actually said, but he just kind of asks it in an innocent way. Of, hey, did God say you couldn't eat any of this stuff? That's, that seems kind of cruel, right? And Eve responds, but in her response, she already begins to twist the word of God, right? She starts to twist the things that he says. R. Kent Hughes, who writes an excellent Genesis commentary, he uses three words to describe what Eve does with the word of God. He says, Eve, in a single answer, diminishes the word of God, adds to the word of God, and softens the word of God. Here's how. The first is diminish. She leaves out a key word in her response. In 2.16, God tells them that they may eat every tree except the one. Eve here simply says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. She leaves out the every tree. See, God in his creation gives the gift of life to Adam and Eve, and he gives them everything in the world for their partaking and enjoyment. Everything. Nothing is withheld from them with the exception of eating from this one singular tree. Because look, you have the whole world, just, just this one tree. Stay away from that fruit. That's it. Don't eat it. Everything else is hers. But when Eve answers Satan, she leaves out every, right? We can, we can eat the trees, just not, just not that one. She kind of just subtly is like, well, you know, maybe God is kind of stifling our ability to do what we want. So she diminishes the promise that God made to them by starting to talk in language that suggests that, well, maybe there's more than just this tree. It's not, it's just, we can eat these trees, just not that one, right? It's just a subtle, little, tiny twist, right? She can't handle it. She starts to question the authority of God and whether or not she really wants to start to eat that tree. Here's, here's an illustration for you. For the rest of the sermon, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't look at the ceiling of this room. Don't look at it. Don't. I wrote something up there. Don't look at it. How hard is it right now <laughs> to not look at the ceiling? <laughs> By the way, I didn't write anything. There's absolutely nothing different about the ceiling than... There ever has been. But the moment I say it, what's your first impulse under, under sin? Just, oh man. How many of you like looked up right away? Like the moment I said it, you're like, why? Is something going to fall down on me? Is there a surprise? Does he have balloons? Right? We have this natural tendency when we're forbidden from doing something to start to do that. Satan introduces that mentality to her here where it hasn't existed before. She never even thought to question God. It never occurred to her Eve didn't go when he said, you can eat of all the trees except for this one. Here you go. Here's the creation. Eve and Adam didn't look at the tree before Satan came and went, oh, I want that tree. It never occurred in their minds to question God's command to them. They just, okay, these trees are great. Right? There's no suggestion that they were veering towards that tree, that they were longing for that tree before Satan comes and subtly messes with them. What's important here is that Satan already has Eve questioning and forgetting the provision of God by leaving out the word every. Second, Eve adds to the words and the commands of God right here. In some ways, Eve was the OG Pharisee, right? 
They took the law of the Lord that God commanded them and they added all these extra laws around it that were entirely unnecessary, that made them look better, that puffed them up, right? It was about the way they, they looked and the way they conducted themselves and, you know, the way that they specifically worshipped. And if you didn't do it in the exact sequences, they did it. And if you walked so many steps at, on the Sabbath and all these extra things, here's the first instance of that. Eve responds to Satan and says, no, no, no. God said that we can eat, all, eat these trees, but we can't eat from the tree over there and we can't touch it or we die. The problem is God never said you can't touch it. They could have climbed that tree. They could have lived in that tree. They could have hung hammocks from that tree. They could have done anything they wanted. All he said was, don't eat the fruit of that tree. But she starts to already add. And what we see is her brain subtly starts to believe that God is kind of a belligerent, rule-giving God. Well, we're not even allowed to touch it. Right? The suggestion is like, what, if I accidentally trip and my hand hits it, I'm dead? Is that how arbitrary God is? No. He never said that, but she adds it here because Satan already has her mind warped and thinking in a rebellious type of way. He has her questioning God and who he is. This revision of God's word shows us something important about her heart. Satan is getting her to view God's commands as restrictive rather than life-giving, and it's working. Right? Do you see how the simplest question from Satan sparks this spiral of confusion? The final way that she diminishes God's word is by softening it. Um, she removes the word surely from the, from the idea that if they eat the tree, they'll die. So we're not supposed to eat of it lest we die. Right? This, this certainty. She starts to diminish this idea that, well, God, that God would actually punish them with death. Right? Don't we do that? Right? We read the New Testament and we hear things like the wages of sin is death. Do we take that seriously in our lives? Like, if you actually believed that when you sin, in that moment, God would strike you dead, are there some things you might do differently this morning? Yeah, we don't really believe God will actually strike us dead, right? Like, in, in the practical kind of way of thinking. Do you see how we, we subtly kind of belittle the seriousness of the things that God says to us about who he is and who we are, apart from Christ? Right? We twist it. He says death, but we go, that's probably not death, death. That's why when we read passages like Acts, where Ananias and Sapphira just like get struck dead for lying, we're like, what? Right? The surprise is that that doesn't happen to all of us. Not that it happened to them, but yet we kind of walk through life with this expectation that, God, I'll just forget about all the things that I kind of mess up a little. Right? It's just little sins. Jerry Bridges calls them respectable sins. Right? There's grievous sins like murder, but there's respectable sins like little white lies. Right? We make those distinctions. And so Eve does it here. She leaves out the word surely. She's already started to move towards a, a, a damning of God's consequences, but she goes all the way here. And we do the same thing. So Satan sees his success in the conversation. Their heart and their mind are already starting to be warped and, and think differently. And so then next he goes in for the kill. Right? And it's the first time he outright actually lies. He says, look, you won't die. You can eat the fruit. You're not going to die. That's such a lie. God's not for real. Listen, he doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows if you eat it, you'll be just like him. 
you'll be wise like him, and you'll be, you know, that says you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. And so he doesn't want you to, to, to be like him. So Satan starts to get Eve to believe this idea that somehow God doesn't, he's trying to keep something back for himself. He doesn't want you to, he's got the curtain up and you're behind there. You can't see behind the veil. There's more to it, right? It's like the matrix. The world you're in isn't the full picture. There's more and he's keeping it from you. And he knows if you bite into that fruit, you'll know. You'll be in the know. You'll be just like him. He wants to keep that part for himself. Here's the problem. Everything we know about God in the creation story suggests two things. Number one, God made man in his image. God actually made us to be like him. If God didn't want us to be like him, you think he would have made us not like him. But God made us to be in his likeness, in his image, to have certain aspects of his nature and his character, to reflect him on this earth. We are supposed to be a reflection of God and his goodness in this world in which we live. And so how can we say, how can Satan say, God doesn't want you to be like him, when the very way that we're created is to be like him? And then he says God wants to keep the stuff for himself. But the whole point of creation is God giving to us. He makes this world for us as people to enjoy, to have dominion over, and to rule. What do you mean he wants to keep stuff from us? His his entire essence and being so far in Genesis has been to just give. We talked about this in our giving sermons at the beginning of the year. God is not a taker, he's a giver. And so Satan just ridiculously warps the way that God works. And Eve just buys into it. The ultimate kicker is when Satan says, she will become like God. The promise here is that Eve could know good and evil, which means Eve could become her own moral agent, rather than God being the arbitrator of her morality. God's truth might be God's truth, but Eve's truth could be Eve's truth. Does that sound like the world today a little bit? You have your truth, and I'll have mine. We don't wrestle with the idea that there might just be one overarching truth that we all live under, like it or not. And it's just the way the world is. We want to have our own way of thinking. We want to have that autonomy, and that's what Eve desired. And so she partakes of the fruits. She gives in. And God's warning of death doesn't even register to her anymore. One of the things about the, the, the passage where she takes the fruit that's so crazy to me is just the, the flippancy with which it happens. There's no like, and she slowly, but like with trepidation, takes a bite and looks. No, she just takes it and eats. Like God's consequences and command aren't even a part of the equation anymore. She has so given herself over to wanting to be apart from God and do things her own way that she just, when she saw that it was desirable looking and good for knowledge and wisdom, she just took it and ate it. And she gave it to Adam, and he ate it too. And Adam and Eve, it's, it's an interesting thing. A lot of us will be like, well, that's, you know, that's why women are trouble. You know, Eve ate the... But here's, here's something we have to understand. When Satan and Eve are talking, and every time Satan says the word you, like you will not die, you will not... In the Hebrew language, that you is plural. The implication is that Adam was actually part of the conversation. At the very least, a participant you know, from the outside listening in. 
When, when, when Satan, it wasn't like Satan and Eve were over here and Adam was off working and he didn't hear any of it and she just said, hey, here's a fruit. And he goes, oh, where'd you get that? You know, nowhere. Like Eve didn't trick Adam into, into sin himself. And so we can't say, well, you know, women, ugh, can't do that. Adam was there. He heard and he willingly took the fruit knowing what it was and knowing what he was doing. He was an equal participant in the fall of man alongside of Eve. Stop blaming the women. They're only 50% exactly of the problem, and we are as well. So if anybody ever says, you know, if Eve hadn't, you can tell them. You, plural. I learned something out of Hebrew. Right? So they take the fruit together, and immediately what we see, and this is why I read verse 225, what we see is that the first thing that happens is they see each other naked. They realize that they were Naked. Right? At the beginning of this pre-fall, they were naked and unashamed because they just didn't even register. Like, what is naked? I don't know. I didn't know any different. But they see it. Right? So Satan was kind of half true. They'll, they'll know some things they didn't know before. But it's not, the, it's not the ultimate wisdom of God that they somehow get, the omnipotence, the, the, you know, the omnipresence, the all-knowing the all nature, the all-present nature that God has. It's not those attributes they get. They just start to see the world in some twisted ways. And one of the first things they realize is that they're actually naked. It starts to affect them. And so they hide the first relational downfall of the fall. They hide themselves from each other. Right? The marital union is somehow filled with shame and, and awkwardness now. And it says that they put together kind of fig leaves to cover themselves. And you see the pictures of Adam and Eve that we paint today. That's why they all have leaves for, for clothes. Right? They cover themselves. And then here comes the second of the relational fragmentations. And that's with God himself. It says the next, very next thing, God is walking through the garden on a, on a cool day. He doesn't see him anywhere. And he calls out to, to Adam. And Adam goes, yeah. And he goes, where are you? What are you, what are you doing? He goes, well, I, I heard you coming and I, I hid myself from you because I was naked. What, what told Adam that he needed to hide from God? He didn't do that before. They walked together. They lived in harmony. The presence of God was nothing fearful. It was majestic and glorious and good. Right before the fall, when God showed up to talk to them, it was, oh, what do you have for us now? Everything so far has been pretty stellar. Like resort, top-notch quality. What's next? Is there an animal that I forgot to name or there's something else? But, but now, post-fall, the first instinct they have when God shows up is to run away and hide themselves from him. And God's response is beautiful. And not, like this fake, naive kind of response, right? God knows, but he just asks, who told you you were naked? How do you, how do you even know the word naked? Like, how do you know what that is? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from? Right. And then Adam does the natural thing. He goes, the wife gave me some and I ate it. He blames her, right? right? When all else fails, just blame her. Don't take any kind of... So there's, there's another aspect of sin that wasn't there before the fall, right? This idea of blame giving. When, when, when God calls you out on something, what's our natural instinct? Well, if so-and-so wasn't such a whatever, I might be more inclined to be more like God is calling me to be. If my boss would give me a raise, you know, then I could live generously. 
If, if my wife wasn't such a pain in my neck all the time, maybe I'd treat her nicer. If my kids weren't constantly on me, maybe I'd care for them more. If, you know, if, I, if, my, if my boss cared about me, I might actually do the work I'm called to do in the way that I'm called to do it. If so-and-so gave me the respect I deserve, I might hang out with them more. You see how like most of the time in the world in which we live, we, we, we shift our blame off on other people in order to somehow right ourselves. That's a result of the fall. And Adam was the first that did it when God showed up on the scene. Eve gave me some of the fruit and I ate. I didn't know I was going to do this. Right? God knew. Like, you were there. You heard all the things that she heard. You made all the same choices that she made. Right? So God goes, what is this that you have done? Sin has entered the world. The separation from the giver of life has occurred. And what comes next is really important to understand with the character of God. And I love this. There's consequences to that sin. But, but what we have next, after he says, what is this that you have done, is what we call the proto-evangelion, which is a fancy way of saying the first gospel. Right? Gospel means good news. So here comes, in scripture, the first good news. The reaction of God who said, if you eat the fruit, you'll die, to them eating the fruit, the first thing he does is this. He addresses the serpent. He doesn't even talk to Adam and Eve first. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's distance, strife, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Sorry, bruise the head of the serpent. Yeah, and you shall bruise his heel. What we have here is the very first foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It says, look, Satan, I'm going to put enmity and strife between the two of you. You and mankind will wrestle and argue, and sin is a part of the world, and man will have to live in it. You will, you will bruise man's heel, but he will crush your head. And that's a, a foretelling of Jesus' death on the cross, right? Jesus dies painfully in agony over a slow, painful death. The Romans really knew how to kill and how to do it in a way that wasn't pretty, right? Agonizing death. But in the grand scheme of things, the victory was won that day, right? The offspring of Adam and Eve, the heel might have been bruised, but Satan's head was crushed that day. And we were restored to a right and good relationship, or the ability at least to have it, right? Until he comes back again and all things will be restored and put back to the way that they were supposed to be before the fall, right? So the very first thing God does, if you say, well, God, God can't be good because of all the evil in the world. When mankind brings evil into the world, we did it. His first response is grace. Serpent. What have you done? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have their offspring crush you for this. I'm going to restore them to me. I'm going to put everything back right the way it's supposed to be. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. And by the way, the rest of not just the book of Genesis, but all of Scripture is the outworking of that promise. Every single word that occurs from Genesis 3.15 on is the story of how God fulfills Genesis 3.15. 
Every word of scripture, you can go to any book, and I'll point to you. Just bring me a chapter and say, how does this somehow point to? We'll point it back to Genesis 3.15. It's the outworking of God's plan all the way to redemption when he comes again. That's what, that's what the Bible is. It's the story of how we jacked it up and God makes it right. Because he loves us. Right? But sin has consequences. And so then he deals with Eve and Adam. And Eve gets two kind of examples of consequence. Obviously there's more. But the first is pain and childbearing. So women, if you've given birth and it hurt, sorry, part of the fall. Wouldn't have hurt outside of the fall. Imagine a completely painless delivery of a child. For those of you who have children. Right now you're going, oh man, that'd be nice. Why, why did she eat the fruit? Right? For Adam, it's toil and labor in the ground. So if you have to weed this summer, again, thank, thank Adam and Eve for the original sin. But the other thing is, and this is interesting to me, is that with Eve, he promises that there will be this kind of tension and strife in their relationship. You will have this kind of desire, this contrary desire to your husband. You're constantly going to be butting up against him. And he is constantly going to want to just, just over kind of rule in a way, right? There's this idea of, of male headship in scripture, right? Like in the, the man is supposed to be the, the leader. But we, we struggle with that because it's so distorted in our world, right? Because we, we, we talk about things like authority in negative ways and, and, and it's hard to follow any man with any level of authority because, well, we're all sinners as men. And so none of us are actually really great at the idea of leading. And so this idea of following becomes unfathomable. So there's this strife that is created in the relationship between them where there's constant disagreement with one another and lording over one another that occurs, right? So in your marriage, when you argue, again, Genesis 3, welcome. All these things are affected and stained by the fall. But he comes through with grace. And we see that this grace envelops all of God's response in a beautiful, beautiful way. The end of this passage even is filled with grace. He gives them the consequences. He banishes them from the garden. But what does he do? He clothes them. Look, you, you shouldn't have leaves. Let me, here's some animal skins. He gives them actual warmth and clothing and, and dignity. Kind of reminds me of the, the passage of the, the young adulterous woman where he kind of he picks her up and he makes sure she's got clothing on so her dignity is restored. And then he says, Go and go and sin no more, right? But God is a is a God of grace and of love and of care and of dignity for those whom he's created to be in his image. He can't bear, he knows that they shouldn't even see themselves as naked, but because sin has entered and because they do, he provides for them clothing. Everything about God just oozes grace. The key here is that separation has occurred, and it's it's driven by us and not God. This is one of the biggest things to get right about sin. When we look at the world around us, the number one reason people don't want to consider God in their life is because they look at the world and they go, how could there be a loving God in a world so evil? There's so much death and despair and and violence and hopelessness and and arguing and bickering and and, and disease and and all these things. How How could that possibly, how could God, a good God, have anything to do with this? Right? But the reality is, man, we, we put our own mess and sin on God. Like he makes this perfect world, 
Mankind jacks it up, and then our response is to shake our fist at him and go, well, you can't be real because the world wouldn't be jacked up. Right? At least once a day in our house, Graham hurts himself somehow. Because you know, I say, come here, or stop jumping on this, or whatever. And, you know, he doesn't, he's three, so he doesn't listen. Not because he's a bad kid, but just because it's, he's three. You know? And so don't jump on the couch. He might fall. And so he jumps even higher, and then ultimately will eat it. And every time, whichever one of us, Bridauer or myself, is closer to him, is at fault. Right? So if he stands up and I'm close to him, he'll, he'll run and hug her. And if she's close to him, he'll run and hug me because, you know, Daddy did that to me. I didn't do anything. I was trying to keep him alive. It was his choices. That is how we function in the world. We jack it up through our selfishness, through our sin that we do and that others around us do to us. And then we, we continuously spiral this world into a worse and worse place. And then we look at the one who made it perfect and we go, how dare you? How dare you do this? You can't be loving. You can't be good. You can't be all powerful or you would deal with this. We're like the screaming, energetic toddler who thinks it's everyone else's fault when stuff happens to us. Right? Now, I'm not telling you that every sin in your life, everything that has happened, every, every bad thing is because of your own sin, and if you weren't, would just stop sinning that this stuff wouldn't happen to you. Sin is all-encompassing. It's not just an action. It's, it's a way of life. Our, our, our mentality, our, our ability to think and reason and understand is stained by sin. And so we naturally start to think and do things in ways that don't line up with the created order and it causes trouble. But other people are sinful too. And so a lot of the sin in the world, a lot of the mess that you have suffered has been done to you by the sin of others. But a lot of it is also on you and me and all of us. us. The story of Genesis 3 is if there's pain in the world, don't shake your fist at God. Shake it at the mirror and at the world around you. God's trying to work on it. God is unfolding a, a redemptive plan to get the world back to the way it's supposed to go and he sent his son because giving us the whole creation wasn't enough. He sent his own son to die for us sacrificially because he is nothing but a giver so that we might have life. But sin entered the world and messed things up. And so with every hardship, with every tragedy, we blame God instead of ourselves. And we're surprised when stuff goes bad in the world. Right. The good news is that God doesn't stop here. His pursuit of us doesn't end when our pursuit ends. God is one who, when we don't pursue him, he pursues us, right? And he allows the world to unfold, all the while unfolding his redemptive plan. Here's the outline for the rest of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are what we call the primeval history. It's the world kind of continuously getting more and more messed up. And there's pockets of redemption. God does some things in the midst of it. Like there's the Noah flood story and, and there's some others. But, but we don't really see the full redemptive plan of God yet. It's just kind of watching the result of Genesis 3. Right? Things just keep spiraling out of control. Chapter 12 is this hinge point where God calls Abraham. And from Abraham starts to build himself a people and a nation through which he displays his redemptive story. Right? And so that's the second half of the book of Genesis, and then really the rest of Scripture. Right? 
is God starting to unfold his redemptive plan and allowing us as the readers of the Old and New Testaments to see it in action. So as we continue over the next few weeks to look more and more at the, the major points of Genesis, what we'll see is God immediately, constantly, sovereignly acting in the midst of our failure. But if you take nothing else away from this morning, take this. When we think that the world has gone to bits because of God, it's not him, it's us. Sin is brought on by us, done to us, done by us, affects us within the world. And when we see evil, we shouldn't look up and shake our fists. We should look all over. And then we should look up for the answer. I don't ever want to hear, I can't get behind God, there's too much evil. The more evil there is, the more we need to cling to him. Who saves us, who loves us, who redeems us, who has an original plan for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you, in your great wisdom, choose to redeem us even in the midst of our sin and our brokenness. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the times that we fall short in our own sin. We ask for forgiveness when we shake our fists at you for the things that we have done. We ask for forgiveness when we refuse to acknowledge you, even though you are the one who created all things beautiful. Lord, we pray and long for that day when you return, that we might be lifted up in glory again. We pray for the day when we are naked and don't even know what that means, because all guilt and shame are gone. We pray that you slowly would put to death our own sin. Pray for the world around us, that we would be ones that are honest about the, the mess that we are, that we wouldn't be a group of people that pretend to be perfect in the world around us, that, that people wouldn't look at us as hypocrites, but that we might just be a place that says, look, we're messy just like you, but we have found bread. And we have found life. Can we show you where it is? Be with us. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,